And this is the Jim Meskimen Podcast uh, for, uh, oh, we're in November now. I don't know, what is it, November 9th, I think, uh, 2014. The impossible, unlikely year of 2014. But that's where we are, and it's creeping close. This is that time of year, I'm sure you feel it like I do. Halloween ended, and now we're like, Christmas is like next week. That's, that's what it feels like to me. I feel like I'm already into New Year's. Everything is just like, it's like that last moment of the vortex, you know, leading down the drain when you've emptied the tub. At first, you barely notice the tub emptying. And then by the end of it, it's just, it's just a breakneck uh, descent into, into the pipe. That's what I feel like uh, 2014 is ending up. And, it's, you know, it's ending up to be a, a pretty nice little year, pretty comfortable uh, as far as activity and fun and friends and, you know, just general mood. I hope it is for you. You know, it's easy for me to say, but I hope it has been a very good year for you and that you're more comfortable and that you're more productive and uh, more creative. I, I do like to bang the drum for creativity in any way I can. And i um, got a couple of things to talk to you about tonight. You know, this is a show, last 20 minutes. That's uh, 22, 20. Try not to go over 22 or 23 minutes because we've all got a lot of stuff to do. i got a lot of stuff to do. We don't need to yammer at each other. If you can't say what you need to say in 20 minutes or so, then I don't think you're really trying. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit and share a couple of things that have been haunting me this week. One good haunting, one bad haunting, goodwill haunting. Um, and then I'm going to uh, play you a little funny thing that Tate and I recorded that I was looking for last week. Couldn't find it, but then I located it. And then um, we're going to be out of here, man. You're gonna, it's going to be completely painless, except for the painful bits. Um, first of all, what's haunting me is this movie I saw, Birdman. Oh, my God. Michael Keaton. I cannot pronounce the name of the director. It's a very uh, interesting... I think he's got the more punctuation marks in his name than uh, anyone I've ever seen before. And uh, wow, this movie, I highly, highly recommend it. If you haven't heard about it, it's a big comeback film for Michael Keaton, but uh, in a way that I was very unexpected. I, I knew I wanted to see it because I'd heard a little bit about it, saw some clips, and it sounded interesting. It sounded quirky and good independent film, and, uh, you know, I don't know, just, just sounded kind of down and dirty and creative and, and not mainstream. It had nothing to do with The Avengers. And so I was interested. And then I saw it, and I was blown away at how great it is. Um, it's not obviously not a traditional film. And for me, I think it really, truly, you can quote me, I'm sure that a lot of people are going to say this, this is a new high-water mark in storytelling, uh, technically, and also performance-wise. Uh, it is filmed as if it is a single take. Uh, it reminded me of... of uh, Gravity. It reminded me of the film Russian Ark, which is a legitimately single take movie with no special effects, particularly where they, you know, they loaded up a 83 minute uh, hard drive and uh, just kept rolling uh, through uh, the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. But uh, this movie has cuts, but they are so um, uh, flawless and seamless that you you have the effect of if it had been a single. Um, single magazine or, or whatever uh, without any cuts at all and to match that because yeah, that's that's kind of a gimmick what's the purpose of that well if it's wed up with this kind of high energy sort of claustrophobic interesting quirky you know <laughs> I don't know no holds barred story then it gives you a, a sense of intimacy and a sense of involvement as an audience that I think I think makes other movies look kind of, you know, I, I think it just takes, 
takes a big chunk out of <laughs> out of enjoyment of a lot of standardly filmed movies. I think it takes the language another step further. Uh, you know, because like in the old days, in the silent days, it was like, okay, this is amazing. This is the best storytelling we can do. We we lock a camera down for an entire magazine of film. We don't move it. We don't have sound. We don't have color. Everything's very, you know, desaturated and high contrast, and that's the best we can do. Great. Then we graduate to sound. Then we get the camera moving. We see, oh, hey, you know what? We can do a tracking shot. And, um, hey, the zoom lens, you know, we can pull it. Oh, and then in recent years, all the digital advances that are done. And now we have a culmination of um, – I was just so glad it wasn't in 3D also because that would have been too much, just too much. But you have a film that, that does – duplicate a real living experience as if you're a fly on the wall or as if you're a fly flying around in the universe of Michael Keaton and his poor struggling character and uh, these other marvelous actors. Michael Keaton's performance is amazing. Ed Norton's performance is amazing. Um, Emma Stone. um, Everybody in it whose names I can't remember right now. They're all terrific. And... uh, and the storytelling itself is brilliant, and I, I don't know—I don't know what the message is really, but it is such a, a fantastic bit of acting that it doesn't—you know—the message is like, mm, okay, fine, <laughs> it's enough, it's enough. I highly recommend it. I think it—I think it deserves to win a lot of awards, and it definitely reminds reminded me of how brilliant Michael Keaton was, and it reminded me of the first time I saw Michael Keaton in. Um, uh, the movie that Ron Howard directed that uh, Henry Winkler was in, Night Shift. Okay, and that was uh, about two guys that work in the morgue and run a run a call girl group out of the out of a morgue. And how daring that was back in 1980. Well, well, Jesus, what was it? 81? I don't know. I have no idea. But a long time ago, and that was when we first met Michael Keaton. And what a bolt from the blue his performance style was. So kind of off the cuff and uh, improvised and jagged and uh, arresting and charming and. You know, that began his his great career, which has sort of been eclipsed by a lot of other people over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, I guess. I just forgot all about him. And then, boom, he comes back on the scene again with an absolutely stunning, stunning performance that totally revivified my interest in him. Uh, You know, I was in my first movie I ever did was a Michael Keaton movie called The Paper. Go and see it if you haven't seen it. Rent it. Uh, Very charming movie. Very fun. He's brilliant in it. And uh, it's one of the best scenes I've ever had, Marissa Tomei and I, in a little scene together. Anyway, go and see, though, before you do that, before you watch a movie from 1993, see Birdman, because it is, it is really, really something. I really enjoyed it, and I think, I think we're going to see a lot of, a lot of um, uh, sort of resets storytelling, filmic storytelling for me. And I think we're going to see a lot of, of movies trying to emulate that style or trying to carry the torch uh, further with that kind of style of because it, it involves the audience so well. Anyway, completely haunted by it last night. I was thinking about scenes. I could totally recall entire scenes. I felt like I could just sit there and go, oh, and then there was this scene and there was this scene and then this, and I could remember everything about it because I was so into it. It was as if it had happened to me. Very interesting. Anyway, so I highly recommend that. I'm sure lots of people will. And uh, Haunting. The, now, that was the good Haunting. And I, I expect... I'm going to go and see it again because I, I want to be... I think that'll help me be de-haunted by it. Um, the Bad Haunting, 
or the disagreeable haunting is, uh, again, Robin Williams' suicide. Uh, a couple of days ago, they released the autopsy results. And no surprises, he was on medication for Parkinson's. Don't know what that is. I mean, I know what it is, but I don't know what the medication is. I'm sure it's not slight. And also, they said, this was the chilling part. They said, uh, well, they said medication for anxiety and depression in normal amounts were found in his bloodstream. Normal amounts. Yeah. So this is a guy who was given drugs because he had anxiety and he had depression. And these drugs are supposed to help him. And he's dangling at the end of a belt a couple of weeks later. And we treat that like, oh, at least we, you know, the media treats it like, well, what can you do? You know, normal amounts. It wasn't like he overdosed. Yeah. Apparently, you don't need to overdose on those drugs. Uh, if you are have a bad reaction to them, the side effects, if you look at, you know, all you have to do is pick up any kind of woman's magazine uh, or any kind of people magazine, anything at all, and read about the depression drugs that probably are exactly the ones that Robin was taking and read the two or three or four or five pages afterwards where they legally have to list off all the side effects. Side effects, by the way, are not effects that might happen. They're like, these are also what you're going to get. It's like a side dish if you go to, to Luby's cafeteria and you say, I would like the side of grits or I would like the side of asparagus with my turkey. Okay, the turkey is the drug that you're taking. Hopefully, it'll solve your depression. But you also have a couple of side dishes, one of which may be suicidal tendencies, suicidal thoughts, suicidal actions, homicidal actions, you know. If, so if you got room at your table for those side dishes, by all means. By the way, don't blame us, you know, because it's on the black box warning. And it's normal. That's the thing. That's the thing that burns me because if we say that's normal, that means, well, a lot of people then are, are, are taking this solution and going, well, you know, this is what the doctor recommended. And in Robin Williams' case, one of the most beloved clowns in the history of the United States in recent years certainly one of the most beloved film and television actors of the 20th century. Uh, and he's given these drugs. He decides to go down this course of treatment, and the net result of which is a voice silenced forever. And then we say, well, that's, you know, that's what happened. It's normal. Well, what can you say? He's a depressed guy. And can we not put these pieces together? All right, yes, a depressed person. A depressed person has things that they do. Sometimes they kill themselves. Do they kill themselves more often when they're on drugs? Good question. Let's ask that question, and let's look at the statistics. And let's not necessarily believe, you know, what the, pharma the pharmaceutical company says about it, uh, you know, in their phony, trumped-up uh, tests. But let's, let's really look at the numbers. Anyway, I, obviously, this sort of thing burns my ass. I uh, I respected Robin Williams a lot. Nobody wanted to see him go out this way. I think it sets a terrible example for everybody. I think it's just a big downer. And if you take the drugs out of the equation, I suggest that the whole outcome changes. I suggest that things change tremendously. And that's the truth. I mean, uh, you know, upset, depression, anxiety, these things are spiritual problems. That's what I believe. They're not solved. With pills, they may be put off. They may be postponed with pills. Sure. But at the end of the day, any drug comes back and after your body has adjusted and 
becomes a much bigger problem than it was when you first started taking it. Anyway, uh, that has haunted me. And I think, you know, this it should continue to haunt us all a little bit until we make the connection uh, between, for instance, the 23 suicides per day in our military and our veterans and our service people, 23 a day. And these are people that, in the main, are being treated with psychiatric drugs, anti-anxiety, uh, anti-depression drugs. Uh, let's, you know, let's just confront this for a half a second and say that it's unacceptable, and we should be haunted by it until it's uh, until we all wake up a little bit about it. Uh, anyway, uh, I admired Robin Williams very much. I admire all artists who strive to make other people laugh and have a good time, which is what I try to do. You know what I did tonight here in, in Miami? People laughed a lot, and I hope that they will uh, continue to be amused by what I do when I'm when I'm trying to be amusing and not trying to be a pain in the ass like I am now. But hey, it's my podcast. I can do what I want. I'm eating up a lot of time. Uh, I'll be back home very soon. I don't have anything to say about the impression, guys. Uh, there's no news. But there is this. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Forgotten Hollywood. I'm Dennis Dooley. With us in the studio is the legendary Gary Gantner. Gary now is uh, pushing 93 years old, uh, but he is one of the great pioneers of old Hollywood. Gary, many people don't know you, but the insiders do. You are responsible for many, many handwriting sequences uh, in films when a, the star has to write a note. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a starlet has to write a note. We see your hand there doing the writing because of your expert penmanship over the years. That's right. I was uh, called the Great Fist of Hollywood and it was my copper plate style and other styles that I developed, uh, which I could match almost any time period. And so when you see those inserts, as they're called, or right. handwriting inserts, inserts. Uh, you can you can pretty much assume from about 1928 on to 1957 that it was my hand. It was a Gary Gantner hand in there. And now you received no screen credit for any of these uh, performances, and no. they were indeed performances. Well, thank you for for that consideration. I always approached it as I would any part. You know, I would get into character. I would of course have to get into a partial wardrobe, uh, only up to the shoulder. Uh, but I would assume as much as possible the character if it was you know, a, a, ten, a plantation owner or perhaps a little girl on the run in Elizabethan England, I would try to assume that viewpoint and do the handwriting accordingly. Maybe the girl is, is timid. Maybe she's frightened. The, the handwriting could be shaky. And I would often never work or meet the director. I'd have to do it on my own reconnaissance. Uh, but I put as much as I could into it, and I, I hope uh, and I flatter myself that it still su- uh, survives as a performance in the final. Well, they certainly do survive to this day. Now, you said you you didn't meet many of the directors or no. work with them directly, but you certainly must have met a lot of the stars. I did, but often just in the commissary or in the, uh, the cast party, sometimes afterwards, never at the premieres, of course. You know, you have to understand that uh, by the old studio system, we were all journeymen, we did our jobs, and we moved on. I was the handwriting man. I was the fist man. And um, I have to say, I'm so grateful for all the 
difficult training given to me uh, by uh, Sister Rosamond when I was growing up as a child who used to slap my wrists and beat my knuckles with a steel-edged ruler to make sure my curlicues were all accurate. And wow, that's I have to give her a lot of credit. Gary, there's so many, but can you tell us about some of your, your more famous notes? I, I know some come to mind uh, uh, when you did uh, uh, Benjamin Bratwell in The Faraway Mountain. Yeah, the Faraway Mountain was a, a great favorite, and uh, there was a time when he had to write a note uh, telling uh, his friend Monty that there was a woman hidden in the basement of the cabin in which he was. It's a very uh, long note, as I recall. It's a very lengthy note. It's one of the longest ones in film history. It goes on and on for six pages, and uh, rare for that time and even for today. Now they would handle it with a voiceover or just a dissolve. But at the time, it was uh, thought you know, we had a more literate audience, and I, we did that all day long. I had to rewrite them once. We thought we had it perfect, and I was very pleased with the rhythm and the acting of, of you know my writing. And then at the end, we realized I had misspelled the word conceal. I'd spell it uh, C-O-N. S-E-A-L, oh. and we had to go back and do it all from, from I, the beginning uh, again. Well, I can remember the film. I remember that long note, and I remember the lovely lace cuff that you wore in that. It was a wonderful yep, costume. Yep. I still have that lace cuff. My wife, Edith, framed it, and we uh, we have it down in the, in the rumpus room. Mm-hmm. Now, you also work with other languages, which was interesting. You wrote yep. notes, uh, and, uh, and I remember there was a very famous Mandarin note mm-hmm. that you wrote in uh, No Time for Dragons. Mm-hmm. I had to write a letter from General Xin Shewa to his concubine, and that was a lot of fun, you know, and I, I had to learn all those Chinese characters. What I did was I turned the paper upside down. That way you don't get confused. You have to come up with your own techniques for these things, and that's what I did. I came up with. You certainly have down. proven yourself you time and time again. Uh, going into the later uh, later films, uh, mm-hmm. into the early 50s, yeah. uh, you worked with uh, some very interesting ballpoints. They were new on the scene. It was a new, a sexy kind of addition to the whole f- film, the language of, of uh, what I call on-screen calligraphic theater. And uh, at, the ballpoint took me a while to get used to. And, and I don't, it's not my preferred instrument. Yeah, you are very good with the, a quill. The quill you've pen. Done a quill. That's, that's you've done pieces of charcoal, Mm -hmm. as I recall. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, there was also a wonderful uh, film made, I believe, in 1951. Uh, You're talking about the Indian film. Yes. Yeah, that was done. I was writing with the tooth of a badger, and I was dipped into an authentic squid ink and uh, on a piece of of, uh, fur. Not the furry side, but the back side of of a piece of of hide, of, of pelt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I should also point out that Gary is uh, responsible for a whole series of instructional films. Uh, yep, that's right. The high school days. Mm-hmm. Every time we saw a hand go to the chalkboard, that, uh, that, that was, was Gary again. Generally me. You can always tell I've got a kind of a, a slight bend to my pinky finger, which was a result of a hockey accident when I was little. So you can usually keep your eye out for that. That's a pretty good signal. It would have been me. That was well, thank you, Gary, for stopping by and letting us in on one of the wonderful aspects of Hollywood that not many people know about. My pleasure. Let me write, uh, let me just sign this uh, piece of paper for you. I'll show you like a signature. A lot of people want an autograph. It's going to take me about 30 minutes. Um, Anyway, I'm going to go back to Los Angeles tomorrow. I'm going to hit the road early. I'll be back in town. Got some animation work. I just uh, was doing ADR for something for Warner Brothers, some uh, movie that's going to come out, I think, direct to DVD. 
Uh, I don't think I can talk about it yet, but it's one of those ADR sessions where a bunch of us actors are sitting in there and we're just ADR meaning automated dialogue replacement, which is like it's like sound effects that you lay in afterwards after the animation is done. Normally the sequence, you probably know this, but uh, you have to create the dialogue first, then the animators animate to that dialogue, not the other way around. And then they go back and like if my character got slapped, but on the day that we recorded the dialogue, I kind of went, huh as if it was a little slap, and then the animator decided he wanted to make a make it a big slap. Then they they bring us, they haul us into the studio again, and we look at actually look at the cartoon, and we go and make it sound like I really got punched, and we and all those awful ADR sounds of people being mashed and electrocuted and slapped and shot and stabbed. That's that's always a fun part of the day. Anyway, amusing to see other actors do that, and it's quite a lot of technique involved. And and there's a very specific thing, you know. Andrea Romano directs very specifically, so it's like if you go, okay, now you're you're being hit by a henchman who's flying through the air, and then you land on a grate. So it should be, and she'll say something like, simpler, just make, you know, real. There's a very particular way to direct these things. It's hilarious. Every now and then I look around and go, what am I doing? As I said, no new news about the impression, guys. I want to thank Tate Rupert for that uh, throwing that wonderful idea about Gary Gartner, the handwriting expert, at me. And um, thanks to Jeff Levin, as always, for the music. And congratulations to the Acting Center Acting School, of which my wife is a founder, and I am a uh, an artificial founder, or a false founder, you might say, a silent founder. Uh, the Acting Center is uh, was in Hollywood. They've now moved to Sherman Oaks, California, a very towny neighborhood of Sherman Oaks. And uh, it's a very beautiful facility. They even have their own sign lit up at night. It's lit up at daytime by the sun herself. And a uh, great school, only place to study theater, I think, in, uh, in the United States, dare I say the Western Hemisphere. And so uh, congratulations to them for celebrating eight years of successful training of actors in the safest and most responsible and most effective techniques available today. So congratulations to them. And I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks a lot for listening. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.